The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. day of my life. Jesus was my teacher. He was my master. He was my friend. There's no one else who has changed my life as much as he has. And now he's gone. I still can't believe everything that's happened today. It was like a nightmare, and it just kept getting worse and worse. It all started late last night. We were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of a sudden, a crowd of people showed up, led by Judas. They arrested Jesus and took him away, and I ended up falling at a distance, first to the high priests, and then back and forth from Governor Pilate and King Herod's. The priests accused Jesus of blasphemy and stirred the people into a frenzy. And the crowd just went crazy, yelling all sorts of hateful things about Jesus and demanding that Pilate have him crucified. And in the end, Pilate gave in to those demands. And all the way along, I watched soldiers brutally 
brutally beating Jesus over and over again. The most loving man I have ever met, and yet everyone, everyone was against him. It all seemed so impossible. How could God allow this to happen? Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Today was the worst day of my life. Jesus, Jesus was my son. My beautiful baby. I was so proud of him. Now he's gone. You know, I watched him take his very first steps. I heard him say his very first words. And I held him in my arms when he cried. Oh, how I longed to hold him in my arms today. But I couldn't. As I watched the soldiers hitting him and laughing at him, I wanted to yell, stop, please stop. That's my son. You're hurting my son. But I couldn't. And they wouldn't stop. He suffered and he suffered. And all I could do was watch. And then, as he stumbled down the road to that horrible place, Golgotha, I was desperate with fear. I kept thinking about that time when Jesus was little and we lost him in Jerusalem for three days. I had been so terrified then, so scared of losing him. But my fear today, I could hardly breathe. I could see the ugly hill of the skull looming closer and closer with every step. And I could hardly breathe. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. How could this be happening? How could this even be happening? I watched them lay the gruesome cross on the ground and put my Jesus on top of it. Then they held him down and they nailed his hands and his feet to the wood. He cried out in pain and I couldn't bear it. I fell to my knees, but I couldn't take my eyes away from him. Even from where I was, I could see his blood splattering as they drove in the nails. And when they lifted up the cross, his face, the same face that 
used to look at me with such love and such peace. His face was filled with horror. His eyes were wide with shock, and he was gasping, just trying to breathe. How could it be possible that my own son was here in front of me, bleeding and suffering, slowly dying on a horrid cross? Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Everything in me wishing, was wishing that he would save himself that he would come down from the cross and prove to everyone who he really was. I believed he could do it. I've seen Jesus calm the storm by the power of his voice alone. I was there when he fed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. I even watched him raise dead people back to life. So why wasn't he saving himself? I stood at the foot of the cross, pleading with God for a miracle. But that miracle never came. I just watched Jesus' life ebbing away as he hung there in agony. How could he allow this to happen? Was he allowing this to happen? I just can't stop thinking about some of the things that Jesus said to us yesterday before he was arrested. He said that he was going away and that soon we would, not, we would see him no more. How could he have known that was going to happen today? And what about last night when the crowd came to arrest him? Jesus asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he said, I am he, all of them, the whole crowd, drew back and fell to the ground. They just fell to the ground. As if somehow the power of Jesus saying, I am he, was more than they could bear. He could have run away then. But he didn't. He could have stopped all of it. But he didn't. Why didn't he? If he knew this was going to happen and had the power to stop it, why? Why did he allow it? At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God. God, why have you forsaken me? My son was completely alone. The crowds had turned on him. Most of his friends had run away. And I was too far to be of any comfort to him. He just hung there, 
suffering by himself. How it pained me to see him so alone. But when he cried out to God like that, I knew in my heart that his loneliness went much deeper than anyone else could see. Ever since Jesus was a child, he has referred to God as his father. And Joseph and I always knew that Jesus loved God his father more than anything. But now, somehow, his father wasn't there. My son had been abandoned by the one he loved the most. And I know that of all the horror of this whole day, the pain of being left by his father was by far the hardest for him to bear. God the Father turned his back on his son that day. A relationship that had always been a perfect example of love was now ripped apart by the wrath of God. But this had always been the plan. You see, God is a perfect and holy God. Because he is perfect, he cannot, will not, and should not tolerate imperfection. And because he is holy, he cannot, will not, and should not be in relationship with anyone who is sinful. And humanity is sinful. We are sinful. But God is also a loving God. And because of his love for us, he created a plan to reconcile sinful humanity to himself, that once again he might delight in us and we in him. But in order for that to happen, the penalty for sin had to be paid. And so, from the beginning of time, the plan has always been for God the Son to pay the price for our sin. So God the Father poured out upon his only Son all of his wrath and anger for sin, the wrath and anger that we should have to bear ourselves. Jesus was abandoned, even crushed, by the one that he loved the most. For the penalty for sin is death, and in order to pay that price, someone had to die. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus was dead. And that is when my heart broke. When Jesus was a baby, we took him to the temple to consecrate him before the Lord. And there was an old man there who prophesied about many things that Jesus would do. And then he turned to me and said, and a sword will pierce your heart as well. Well, today is that day. When my son Jesus died today, my heart died with him. No mother should have to see what my eyes have seen. My son was a good man. And today he lost his freedom, his dignity, the presence of his father, and his life. There is no hope left. Maybe there is hope. Last night, Jesus said that one day we would see him again, and that when we did, no one would be able to take our joy away from us. 
What did he mean by that? And then there were those things that he said yesterday after supper when he surprised us all by washing our feet. We were shocked that he would wash our feet. After all, he is our teacher and we are his followers. Jesus said to us, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. And then when Peter tried to protest, Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What did he mean by that? And what is it that we're supposed to understand later? When he said those things, I saw the urgency in Jesus' eyes. I could see that this was important to him. If all of what happened today was something that Jesus knew about and allowed, how does it connect with Jesus asking us to allow him to wash our feet? Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus, the Messiah, had come to save the world from sin. And he knew this meant that he had to die as a sacrifice so anyone in the world could be set free from the consequences of sin and instead know God's grace, forgiveness, and presence forever. But he also knew that in order for us to receive this wonderful gift, we would need to willingly accept it. We would need to repent of our sin and allow Jesus Christ to grant us free grace, a free and beautiful relationship with God. It sounds like an easy thing, and in many ways it is. But it's not easy for some, as surrendering our sin to God means to humble ourselves before him, like allowing Jesus to wash our dirty feet. But unless we allow him to wash us, we have no part with him. The gift of salvation is freely given. We cannot earn it, we cannot buy it, and we will never live up to it. It is free, but we have to accept it. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid him there. The Son of God had been rejected by humanity, scorned by his people, and slain by his own father. And now his body was laid in a tomb, waiting for the rest of God's plan to unfold. He sacrificed everything, willingly, for us, because we needed him to so that we could each personally know the grace and love of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for suffering the agony and humiliation of the cross on our behalf. Thank you for taking upon yourself the weight of our sin and the punishment that we deserved. Thank you for facing the wrath that we now will never have to face. Thank you for humbling yourself unto death that we might have life. Thank you. Every single person who has ever looked to you for forgiveness is now free. And today we remember why we are free. Because of what you did for us on the cross. So a price has been paid. An offer has been made. The gift was freely given. 
And now this, this morning, as we gather and remember that gift, the question that comes is, what is our response? We have all the information. We understand the truth. We've heard the history. And now, what is a response? We read the scriptures that the response that the Bible always talks about is, is one of faith. Let me read to you a portion from the scriptures found in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's beginning in verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. Your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world for this very purpose by which he came, and our response to that is to believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that our faith and our hope is in God. What is faith? Someone has said that faith is entrusting everything that you know about yourself to everything that you know about God. Another person has said that faith is never stepping into the darkness. Faith is always stepping into the light. God reveals something to you, and now in response, you have a responsibility to respond to God. Faith is always the response to something that God has shone in your life, a light that has shone. And, and of course, the scriptures are the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. And so faith is far from this attitude that religions tend to reduce it to. Faith is so much more than the attitude of something that is intellectual and cerebral. It is so much more than a checklist mentality of what you might say you believe about God, about life, about you. Faith is so much more than all of that that many religions would try to make it. Faith is not a man-made invention to reach God. Faith is the response to the fact that God has built the road from heaven to earth, and now how do I respond to what he has done? True faith and hope in God, then, are uh, means of responding to God, and it can't be somehow uh, uh, a human-made thing. It has to be a God-made thing. What is that all about? If you would just back up the cameras for a while and go real far up into the sky and look down upon this eternal God that we have looked upon and look upon the eternal plan of salvation that he has planned, uh, I think we would see it perhaps more in terms of what faith might call us to. For I believe that indeed this whole thing is not so much about religion as it, as it is about a love relationship. The, the, the grand narrative that we read about and that we celebrate today in Easter is a love story more than anything else. It is a love story. 
And if we understand it as a love story, we see then that our faith is tested in, in what kind of a quality of faith we bring to God. You see, do we believe in Jesus because he is needed? Do we believe in Jesus because he is useful? Do we believe in Jesus because legally, somehow, when I stand before a holy God, I need him? Or do I believe in Jesus because he is so beautiful? Because in Jesus is found the incredible worth of character that no one could display on earth except him. Because in Jesus is such a loveliness that my soul cannot help but fall in love with him. Understanding all of the legalities of needing to stand before a holy God one day and that only Jesus can take you there, it really has to be about a love relationship or you end up simply using Jesus. What God promises is really a return to paradise. Jesus, you see, loved your soul more than you loved your soul. Jesus is the one alone that demonstrates such love that it, it could beckon nothing in response except love. And that's what faith really is, is faith is a love response to God, not a legal response, not a have-to response, not a necessary response. What do I mean? Well, when I look at Scripture, I realize that God promises a return to paradise. When I read the Scriptures, I realize that that the Bible ends where it begins. Do you see that? That the Bible ends where it begins. In the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the book of the Bible called Revelation, we see in chapter 22, verse 4, it says, they shall see him face to face. They shall see his face. And, and that, that was not, that's not seen all throughout the rest of biblical history, except at the beginning of biblical history when we see that the first man and woman walked with God in the garden and they enjoyed this face-to-face -face communion with God. And that's, that's what God is saying, I want to return to that. That love relationship that I had with you, that intimacy that we shared, that's what I want. That's what eternal life is all about, to know God and to know Jesus Christ, His Son. And so there is a return. And the only difference between the garden that we read of in Genesis 1 and 2 and the garden that paradise is all about as we prepare for heaven is that Jesus Christ is going to be there. Jesus Christ, now the crucified and risen Son of God, is going to be there. Oh, Jesus Christ was in that first garden. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were there in creation, but Jesus Christ had not yet come. He had not yet been crucified. He had not yet borne the punishment of sinners like you and I. He had not yet completed the very redemption history that God had planned from eternity past, because he knew we'd fail. He knew that we could not live as we are called to live. He knew that we would not use our free will in a way that would honor his grace and glory. And so he planned from the beginning of time that Jesus Christ would come down to earth on a mission. And that mission was to rescue souls that he loved so deeply. 
So today, as you think about your response to the, the, the facts you know, the history you know, the truth that you know, we've been seeing it dramatized this morning. We've had dramatic readings. We'd have scripture readings. We've read about real things in history that have taken place on this earth. And the response now is to take it in and say, okay, what, what does it mean for me? And the response of faith and putting your hope and trust in God means that now you step into that light and you say, God, all of me I want to give to all I know about you. And that means understanding and trusting him with each matter. There is a poet that wrote a long time ago. His name was George Herbert. He wrote a poem called The Sacrifice. And he writes it from the perspective of Jesus in looking back on the Garden of Eden as well as the cross that we celebrate today on Good Friday. And one of the verses from that poem reads this way, All ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, now I must climb the tree. A tree of life for all, but only me, was ever grief like mine, <laughs> was ever grief like Christ's. Today, as we respond to a rehearsing of the events of Good Friday, to, today as we respond, we're going to be gathering around these tables at the front, the, the Lord's table, and it is a response to not just the facts of history and not just the truth about Jesus and not just the grand story that we have relived today. The, the response that we do in, in coming forward to receive this meal is saying that, Lord, I'm, I'm giving all I know about me to all that I know about you. And I believe the history and the truth I'm not disputing. And even the verdict that you have pronounced over me and all of humanity that I am a sinner, that I am lost, that my soul is stained beyond cleaning unless the blood of Jesus cleans it. Having believed the truth and known the history and agreed with God on it all, there still is the response that you have personally, so very intimately, to return to the love story again. To return to the love story, this, this God, incredible God that loves you so intimately, this God that sent his son to die in your place, this incredible tragedy that is, that is lived out in history, you, you need to receive that personally as you come forward today. You need to take the bread representing the body that hung on the cross instead of your body, the blood that was spilled instead of your blood represented in the juice. And you take that bread and that cup, and in the quietness of that moment, you, you can have an opportunity to declare before God, Lord, take me back. Take me back to the love relationship that you wanted to have with me all along. Forgive me for making this into a religion. Forgive me for being so self-absorbed about my own performance in how well I live up to my side of the bargain. Help me to see that indeed, the price was willingly paid by your son. 
and the gift was freely given. And my response is simply gratitude. My response is simply now, Lord, I'm yours. You've purchased me. Do what you want. I have been slain by love, and now I live for that. Would you come forward later on as we worship and lay your life in a fresh way before Jesus Christ, thanking him for the love that loved your soul so much, and determine today that you want to receive by faith that love again into your heart, and from this day forward, not live in response to God out of duty, out of a have to, out of a try to, but live in response determined that this is, this is a love relationship. And you're going to respond to the love of God with a, as much of a corresponding love in return that you can give him. Let us pray. Father, we are about to come around your table. And as, as people who have been aware of the course of history, as people who have understood the significance of the history we've, we've told and recounted today, as people who have understood that Jesus Christ was a real man sent from you, that he was God in flesh, that he came to earth, and that he died in our place, and that that was the supreme sacrifice necessary for us to be cleansed. Lord, that above all of that, that language, help us to hear the love story here. And help us to respond from the core of our being with an equal love in return, abandoning love. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for first loving us. And we pray that as we respond by coming forward, that each person who, who says yes, yes to you, says yes, I, I believe in this bread and this cup that represents truly Jesus' body and his blood shed for our sins. Lord, I pray that each person would respond by faith. Lord, that if there's one person here that is responding for the first time and understanding the message of Christ for the first time, that you would grant them faith to respond in coming forward and receiving you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the very first time. If there's others of us here in this room that just simply need to, to declare, this I do in remembrance of you, with my brothers and sisters, and I determine that my relationship with you is going to be a love relationship. Forgive me for making it less than that. Lord, would you meet us today, risen Christ, and bless this time around these tables. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.